top brass breaking the rules on lobbying. General Sir Mike Jackson tells us his side of the story. Shaping defence for an independent Scotland and former Fusiliers fight to save their battalion. He explained that it was because of recruiting and future sustainability. Well, frankly, that's nonsense because we are the best recruited regiment in the army at the time of the announcement. Ministry of Defence has launched an investigation into whether former high-ranking military officers have breached official rules on lobbying. The so-called Generals for Hire story saw four senior former members of the armed forces caught in a sting by the Sunday Times. They were recorded offering their contacts with ministers and former colleagues for six-figure sums. Former Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Mike Jackson, and our Defence Analyst, Christopher Lee, join me now. Hello to both of you. Um, General Jackson, um, you were questioned, weren't you, by an undercover reporter. What happened exactly? Um, I was indeed. And um, uh, a proposal was put uh, regarding promoting um, a probably fictitious, I suspect, um, UAV series of uh, equipments. Um, and um, uh, as you know, the story followed uh, from similar uh, arrangements with other senior, retired senior officers. Is this kind of approach to be expected? W were you taken in by it? Uh, I have to admit that I was. Um, uh, <laughs> um, what, what did they say to it's you? It's an embarrassing thing to have to admit. What did they say to you and how were you taken in? Well, as I say, um, there was a conversation about promoting um, defence equipment. I did not know they were reporters. The, the paper claims you boasted of old friends in the MOD who would help in a lobbying campaign, but you didn't suggest, there was no wrongdoing suggested in what you said to them. Are the rules on lobbying clear? Do they need to be clearer, do you think? It's a very good question. Um, pe some people interpret the word lobbying in different ways. Um, what appears, so far as I can see, the implication the Sunday Times were putting forward was that retired senior officers could use improper influence to basically to suborn the equipment uh, acquisition process. Now, anybody who knows that process knows it's very rigorous indeed. And their version, I think, of lobbying was this improper influence if I can add to it, um, it seems to me entirely sensible that um, a defence industrial firm uh, wishes to employ retired military people to give it advice. That is quite different to improper uh, use of, of influence. Uh, and what do you, you judge to be improper use of influence? Well, uh, I mean, I suppose that is worse. Um, but, uh, um, this is uh, uh, what happens, not in Britain, in my view, is, is money changes hands. I mean, I suppose that is the worst of it. Um, and is, it is there I mean, actually something wrong with that, if it's actually a contract and a deal between two individuals and it's actually above board? No, you misunderstand me. Um, that the 
the commercial firm passes money to those who make uh, uh, equipment decisions. But, I mean, it's such a preposterous um, a theory that... Uh, uh, and I'm not saying the Sunday Times suggested that. They didn't. But the implication is it was improper. Um, and um, for myself, I do not believe anybody uh, serving and involved in the equipment decision-making chain um, is susceptible to that sort of... Uh, in my view, um, um, fictional behaviour. We, we've seen the resignation this week of Lieutenant General Sir John Kisley from the Royal British Legion. Um, the Defence Secretary has said in general that, that the behaviour that's been exposed has damaged the reputations and broken rules. Do you, do you agree with that? Well, there are the rules. Um, they are Cabinet Office rules. Any Crown servant um, who, uh, above a certain level... Uh, who uh, retires and wishes to take up civilian employment has to clear it. Um, I did this um, what, six years ago when I left the army um, and um, you are given permission sometimes there are conditions attached to it to take up whatever civilian employment after two years you are then to the best of my recollection um, uh, a free citizen to do um, what you wish. Um, those rules are there. Uh, I don't think it's for me to comment on who did or did not breach them. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not in a position to make that judgment. Indeed, General. Uh, is, uh, there, I, is there this revolving door, though, that we've heard so much about between the MOD and private defence companies? Well, it implies, again, there's something improper. Um, it is... You know, we are a free country. It is, seems to me, perfectly sensible, as I said a moment ago, for a commercial company to wish to be given um, military advice as how best to portray what uh, they have to offer. Um, it's, it's not lobbying in, in, in that rather sort of slightly underhand, sinister connotation that has been used recently. Christopher Lee, is it simply quite natural for there to be these relationships between former military top brass defence companies and the MOD? I think so. I mean, quite frankly, if I were a defence minister and I went to a cocktail party and there was um, sort of um, um, the, the general was there and we were thinking about buying a new bit of kit, I'd probably say to him, that, tell me, uh, General Jackson, what do you think? You know, you've got experience and I'd, I want to know that sort of thing. But there's something which, which puzzles me. How is it that people like um, General Jackson, General Dannett, uh, the Admiral, the uh, Air Marshal, top of the tree in their professions, how come they get conned by a bunch of Sunday Times reporters that come, uh, come along and say, look, we're from a, a defence company. How is it that nothing sparks, nothing gives a signal, sends off a signal, is this true? Is it because they don't have the backup anymore that they can check these things out, or what is it? Do you have the answer to that, General? Well, since um, I was found wanting in that regard, it's a very difficult question to answer. Um, perhaps, perhaps people who've spent long years in the armed services have a more trusting outlook on life than life actually is these days. I'm probably, that sounds probably rather 
weak explanation. This is probably the best I can do, though. Does it, does it mean it's going to change the way you actually respond to people who approach you in future? Sadly, I think it will. What once were you... Bitten, once bitten, twice shy. And um, it's not the way I like to operate with people. I, I like to take people um, as they are. But when they pretend to be something else, you, you feel... Um, you're going to have to be rather more wary in the future, which I think is a great shame. Christopher. Just a quick thought. Uh, Paul Carnahan, who is the Commissioner for Standards in the House of Lords, is going to interview two of the uh, people here, uh, General Dunnett and Phil Marshall Stirrup. And one of the questions he's going to ask them, I'm told this morning, is how come you weren't able to check out the bona fides of these people? It's a big subject because it happens every other week. Let's hope that some kind of system is set up to, to in light of all of this. Um, General Sir Mike Jackson, thank you very much for your time today. Sit rep. With um, hundreds of former Fusiliers have marched on Parliament in protest at the decision to disband a battalion. Was the Cuba Missile Crisis the closest we've ever come to all-out nuclear war? And could it happen again? Scottish National Party's annual conference opens in Perth later, three days after the First Minister, Alex Salmond, signed a deal on the terms of an independence referendum in 2014. The party will debate plans to end its long-standing opposition to NATO membership. I spoke to their defence spokesman, Angus Robertson, and asked him what the, the SNP's ambitions are for Scottish defence. Indeed, we're going to have uh, Scottish Defence Forces that will be made up of those who currently serve within the, the UK Armed Forces who would like to serve in Scotland, those who are currently there or those who have an affinity with it would incorporate the Scottish recruited uh, regiments. Uh, and, of course, uh, it's something that would be moulded for the requirements that we have. So d just to take you through the context of all of this, we are having our conference in this weekend in Perth and I'm proposing uh, a resolution uh, to the conference uh, tomorrow Friday uh, and we're going to be looking at a, a great deal of detail which goes through all of these points that you're raising with me, the reasons why it's a good idea to make your own defence policy, what is it that one requires, and of course in Northern Europe we've got a really, really big challenge heading in our direction because of the melting, melting of the, the Arctic ice. All of our neighbours, whether it's Norway or Denmark or Iceland, uh, and then further afield, Russia or Canada, they're all taking it tremendously seriously. The UK isn't at all. This is something we need to get to grips with. So there's a very concrete example about why we require the appropriate defence and security security arrangements to deal with the challenges that we have uh, in our neck of the woods. Uh, and of course, we also need to remember that in recent years, uh, we've seen the defence uh, infrastructure in Scotland be really seriously affected by defence cuts and, and Whitehall. And I know this has happened in other parts of the UK too, but we have the option of doing things differently and doing things better. Indeed. Now, now you talk lots of questions there, but what about the answers? You talk about recruiting from the UK armed forces as they stand at the moment. What would happen to the Royal Regiment in Scotland? Then what about the troops that perhaps don't want to go? Would they have dual roles in the UK Armed Forces and Scottish Defence Forces, or would they be simply Defence Forces and make the choice between the two? Well, well, first off, obviously everybody in Her Majesty's Armed Forces takes an oath to Her Majesty. Uh, so, And that will remain. The Queen, obviously, is, is our head of state and, and will remain so. So that's point one. Answer two, what happens with Scottish recruited uh, units, so the likes of the Royal Regiment of Scotland, would become part of Scottish Defence Forces. Uh, would it be possible for service personnel to determine 
government so where w- they the would w- want to... So the Royal Regiment of Scotland would become part of the Scottish Armed Forces and you simply Scottish, take them over? All Scottish recruited regiments will become part of the Scottish uh, Defence Forces just as uh, regiments that used to be part of the British Armed Forces before Irish independence oh. reverted to the Irish Free State. What about NATO? Uh, obviously a difficult subject for the SNP. I understand there'll be a vote during the conference. Um, would a newly independent Scotland, should it become a member in your view? I think it should, and uh, my recommendation what kind follows of member? Yeah, a full member of, of NATO, just like Norway, just like uh, Denmark. My view is that it's beneficial to Scotland, but also all of our neighbours and allies, that we continue to work together as full members, because I think that way we guarantee that we are living up to our obligations, of course, as a mutual And what about the obligations, clause, though, to support and, the, Na- and, and indeed the obligations. Yes, and, and the to obligations support NATO's to some, mutual defence strategy, which well, includes in, the potential it, use of nuclear weapons. Well, I think if you... If you speak with um, decision makers in Northern Europe, the focus for countries like Norway or Denmark, both of which are countries that have arrangements uh, with NATO which exclude nuclear weapons. So you're talking about this partnership for peace, this sort of half in, half out? No, I'm talking about the full membership of NATO which both Norway and Denmark enjoy. Both of them do so on the basis of being conventional members and have arrangements that ensure they do not have nuclear weapons on their soil. Uh, And then on top of that... There's a whole raft of ways in which these countries and others in our neighbourhood work together. So that, in concrete terms, is the likes of air policing and maritime patrol. That currently happens at the present time through NATO, and I think it would be detrimental uh, for Scotland to become sovereign and effectively pull the plug on the radar screen that secures Northern Europe. Uh, detrimental both to Scotland, but detrimental also to neighbour, also to neighbours. And that's why, having spoken with our neighbours about what they do and what they operate as a non-nuclear conventional defence policy within NATO. This is something that has been endorsed this week by the independent think tank NATO Watch, uh, which has said it is perfectly compatible for countries, and the majority, of course, of NATO countries are non-nuclear countries, uh, to do so on the basis as good neighbours and allies, and that's what I'm proposing, and hopefully uh, that is what SNP conference delegates will approve. What about Trident? Are you going to throw it out of Faslane? Would you consider sovereignty, making it a sovereign base area? Um, uh, no. Uh, we want uh, Faslane to operate as a fully functioning conventional naval base. Uh, public opinion in Scotland is is overwhelming on this question. When when the public are asked, it's roughly about 70% of the population say they don't want nuclear weapons to be based in so Scotland. So Trident would be out and there's no negotiation on that? Uh, absolutely. There's no negotiating on, on Trident remaining in Scotland. It will leave. And that's one of the great advantages of, of being a sovereign country. You can make decisions like that. It's exactly the same kind of decision as Canada made, exactly the same kind of decision as Greece made. And I would add to this that it's very important from our perspective because we have only one main naval operating base, that if we are going to live up to our obligations as neighbours and allies, providing the conventional capability that is required, we need Faslane. Obviously it's a base in Scotland, so it will revert to the Scottish Government and Scottish Parliament, that that facility is there for the use of conventional naval forces in Scotland. Obviously we will work with the rest of the UK to work out the safest, speedy timeline for Trident to be moved elsewhere, but the base is required for conventional purposes, which is one of the great advantages of Scotland being sovereign. The SNP's defence spokesman, Angus Robertson, Christopher Lee, what do you make of that? Not much. Trident, uh, that, that end thought, is it feasible? Um, oh, yeah, everything's feasible, if you get it. I mean, let, let's, let's put something in, in perspective. First and foremost, why are, um, let's say, wholly United Kingdom forces based in Scotland? 
and there was a, a, a traditional reason, there's a practical reason for the base there. When he says, for example, that um, uh, defending uh, um, the various military challenges facing Scotland by itself, what he doesn't say and what he doesn't know what those military challenges are. Mm. He, talks he, also about, talk, he also talks about environmental challenges, yeah, the well, melting that, ice caps. Yeah, but that, 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 that's, a possible, that's a possibility, I suppose, but it doesn't come under military challenges. Mm. He wants to have, for example, um, a NATO command centres. Well, NATO actually doesn't want a command centre there. You know, it's made it very, very clear. And NATO Watch is a, is a very good organisation, but it actually doesn't come out for that. The Maritime Patrol... Uh, the air patrols. It's not going to happen um, simply because there is the, the reason for the maritime patrol areas, uh, areas before were to look after ASW anti-submarine warfare, look after sort of what were the Soviet so, Soviet air defences and Soviet attacking forces. So that's not going to happen either. What about recruitment? Well, uh, recruitment. I mean, what's he want? Is he is he going to give nationality to a load of Fijians? Because if you look at some of the Scottish regiments, the Black Watch, for example, a huge percentage, sometimes as high as thirty percent are from overseas. They're not Scots. And when he says, OK, we'll invite everybody to become part of the Scottish, the Scottish army, the Scottish regiments become part of the Scottish army, Scotland cannot recruit enough Scots to go into the existing regiments, um, which is why they have to get people from overseas. It's a final point that's particularly important, I think, and that is that Scotland will not, at the present rate, and we're talking perhaps 10, 15, maybe 20 years ahead but has there's no plan that's been accepted to have a central bank every independent state needs a central bank he talks about norway Actually, and enough, denmark in the wider conversation he was also saying to me that the pay pay for troops would be at least equal if not better and i don't know where he's getting the actual figures it becomes from, a separate force then doesn't it and so where's he getting his defense budget from you know norway and denmark have central banks that's why they can have uh, this uh, arrangement and be members of NATO but have a, sep a separate arrangement. He can't do that unless you've got the money. Look at the problems of the defence budget at the moment. Is he going to have that uh, north of the border? You know, it's, I mean, m my family have been in, in, in the Scottish regiments, I think, for about 200 years. Uh, and you say to them, well, you know, what about having a Scottish army? And they all answer one thing, to defend what? Christopher, stay with us. Hundreds of veterans have marched on Parliament today in protest at the decision to disband a battalion of the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers. MPs are calling on the government to reconsider the decision, which critics claim was motivated by a political fix rather than an assessment by defence chiefs. BFBS reporter Charlotte Cross has spoken to retired Brigadier Trevor Minter, who only relinquished command of the regiment in May this year. When the cuts were made for Army 2020, I was called in by the Chief of the General Staff and told that my regiment would be split or halved by one battalion. He explained that it was because of recruiting and future sustainability. Well, frankly, that's nonsense, because we are the best recruited regiment in the Army at the time of the announcement. There are others that were, were completely under-recruited, and it's basically political interference with the military decision-making. They wanted to save boats north of the border, and, and so we, the Fusiliers, were the sacrificial lamb, which is an injustice. And that's why we're here protesting today in support of our MPs who are turning out to force the debate in Parliament to, to declare an injustice on our regiment. And how did that make you feel when you were told something that you knew was a blatant untruth? Sickened, frankly, because what, I, no one can really look me in the eye in the army and tell me why 
this regiment is being reduced and I can't turn round to the troops and explain to them. The chances are in 2014 the 2nd Battalion soldiers from Afghanistan or Cyprus will be either made redundant and sent back to their home areas or they'll be deployed to other regiments who can't recruit like the Scots. And I can't look them in the eye and tell them that's just. These people here today are all the veterans. There's no serving soldiers or TA here today, but we're here in support of our regular colleagues because we think that they deserve this support. And we have put our lives on the line for justice all over the world and we expect to be justly treated by our government. And you say that there are no serving soldiers here today. I mean, they've been told not to turn up, haven't they? Do you think some people might stand on the sidelines and watch the march and give it support that way? No, we made it quite clear. The regular army must obey their orders. We are here as veterans because we're not under command and therefore we can speak for them. And how hopeful are you of reversing this decision? Because you have a couple of years to go before it's actually axed. We have. We've got two years. And uh, I I don't think this country stands for injustice. And I think that's what's going to be debated in Parliament today. This is a proper democracy. And uh, hopefully the issue will be seen through to, to a proper conclusion before 2014. And you must be quite pleased as quite a recent commanding officer of the unit to see so many veterans come here and from all over the country as well. I'm, I'm so touched that they're here. The boys set off from Newcastle at four o'clock this morning, uh, from Manchester uh, early this morning. They should be here shortly from Warwickshire and from London. And, you know, when the Secretary of State explained why this regiment couldn't recruit, he forgot to mention London. He didn't know that we recruit from London. So we are a regiment that's extremely sustainable, very well recruited and should not be being considered for reduction. Brigadier Tremmenter talking to BFBS reporter Charlotte Cross. Uh, Christopher, what do you make of all that? Uh, Was it saving votes north of the border? Uh, It wasn't actually saving any. Um, because the political But were they they the sacrificial lamb, as as he put it there? Yeah, I mean, I think simply bad planning. Um, because this is a, as you know, as, as uh, Brigadier Trevor says, it is a superbly uh, recruited uh, um, regiment. Not only is it superbly recruited, it's a constantly recruited. It's exactly what the army has looking for in in, if you like, in a uh, in a in a foot brigade, a foot battalion at the at the moment just simply daft. We go back, in fact, to what Angus Robertson was talking about when you interviewed him about the idea that we'll invite people to come and join our army, our Scottish army, with the fact that the Scottish regiments are not well recruited. And quite frankly, if you wanted to chop any regiments to save some money, you'd go north of the border and do it there. So you say badly planned. Is it a mistake then? Might they change their minds? Incompetence. Everybody I talk to about it say it's incompetence. They so could, could actually, they change their minds on uh, it? Do you oh think? Oh yeah, they realize, could. Uh, yeah, they could. I mean, this is. T- we sometime we really ought to. Everybody ought to start looking at what happened in 2020 in July, and see what's happened since, and see what happens. For example, maybe the consequence of bringing people back earlier so the from plan, Afghanistan. The, plans, the, t- the army it plans. It could. It could. It could change, and they could put them in different directions. I mean, for one, for example, it, it, you know, they're, they're still talking this week about having 30,000 reservists. Um, what happens if you don't have 30,000 reservists? Where's the shortfall going to be made up? Shortfall is made up in 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 really well recruited. Not only well recruited, but someone like the Brigadier has made sure it's enormously well trained, very efficient uh, and admired uh, regiment. Daft, is it? 
Well, Britain's Commonwealth soldiers are being treated as slaves, according to the head of a charity representing veterans. Dr Hugh Milroy from Veterans Aid has written an open letter to the Prime Minister accusing the British government of betraying former troops in the way it handles their applications to remain in the UK once their military service is over. Dr Hugh Milroy joins me now from central London. Um, Dr Milroy, using the word slave, pretty extreme, why have you made that comparison? I think, uh, you know, I realise, I uh, fully realise it's extreme, but what we're seeing is, is people that are just being discarded. And, and I find it very, very difficult to understand how you can actively recruit. I mean, these people didn't arrive with us in the back of a truck. We actually went to get them. You bring them back, and as soon as they're new, no use, so they've come to the end of the, the, their time with us, we utterly discard them. And I, I find that quite, quite difficult so to get my head around. Just run. explain for people who don't, haven't heard about this story, what's, what's going wrong with the application process? Because there have been sort of instances where, where former soldiers have perhaps been told they can't stay in the UK for a speeding offence. Indeed, that's ab absolutely correct. That, the one you're talking about there is uh, Sapper Poloko Heri. Uh, what we've got, and have had for five years, a problem with foreign Commonwealth soldiers trying to get leave to remain after their time in the service and being refused. Um, there's been a dramatic increase this year uh, to the extent that we've nearly had a uh, hundred cases, a uh, hundred approaches. Each one is uh, subtly different in its own way, but in essence, uh, it's uh, people like Poloko Heri who applied to for leave to remain, but it was turned down because a speeding ticket was judged to be evidence of bad character and, by and the also, UK Borders Agency. It also seems that a blemish-free military record is also um, quite important, and that you, you, you believe is being misused by the or misunderstood by the UK Border Agency to be some kind of offence. Yes, indeed. Uh, internal discipline matters have been read across and have been read across for some time as criminal offences by the, uh, on the police. So they are registered on the police national computer. So when the UK Borders Agency uh, go forward and, and try and check the person out, uh, they find that they've got um, effectively a criminal record. Now, you, you are challenging, you're representing people and helping them in their challenges to, to when their applications to remain are, are rejected. What success are you having? Is, is there actually kind of some understanding that's coming into this from the UK Border Agency? Are you making any headway? Um, in a sense, we're, we're, we're winning the political debate in the sense that people are picking up on it as an issue has been mentioned in Parliament. But the UK Borders Agency deal with each one in... Um, individually. So it's quite difficult. Now the reason I'm talking is not because I'm a campaigner but what I'm seeing is that, that here at Veterans Aid is that there is a how say, the human cost of this is, is appalling. You know, we are, we are actually feeding people. We're paying the, because when you're going through the process you're not allowed, and it can take some time, in some cases two years uh, you're not allowed access to benefits and you're not allowed to work. So in effect, you can starve. So that's why I started to think along the lines. So oh, this is this is amazingly like slavery. You know, we no longer need you get out. Which is why you've also said the military covenant is not worth the paper it's written on. Um, Indeed. How do you think the system should change to make uh, this fairer in your eyes? 
I think we need to have an amnesty uh, for all of these uh, uh, foreign Commonwealth soldiers. Due weight must surely be given for service in the name. If you know, it really strikes me, you know, and strikes everyone at Veterans Aid that if the uh, if the person is good enough to serve in our armed forces, then surely they're good enough to be citizens of this country. Why can't we adopt the French system? You know, five years in the Foreign Legion, you get offered a French passport. I believe even the Americans have got it. You know, three years uh, with their colours and and you can become an American citizen. So, but somehow or other, you know, in the case of uh, Corporal Balewi, you know, when when, I, when he arrived at Veterans Aid, we, we sort of looked at and couldn't believe he'd served 13 years. He has a chest full of medals. Surely we've got to stand by our people. Surely we can't be discarding them in this way. And, no. and that's just, to me, it just shows a fundamental weakness in the whole concept of the Armed Forces Covenant. You know, it's a bit like watching a train that arrived at a station and it's not going anywhere. There's no driver. Uh, OK, Dr Hugh Milroy from Veterans Aid. Thank you for your time today. This is BFBS. Sit rep. It's 50 years since the start of the Cuba Missile Crisis, the standoff between Washington and Moscow, which brought the world to the brink of nuclear war. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military build-up on the island of Cuba. That was the moment President John F. Kennedy revealed to the world the unfolding crisis. Um, Christopher, briefly explain what happened. Right, you go back to where we're talking about. This is 1962. Go back three years, 1959. What happened in 19, January 1959 is Castro took over. And therefore, Cuba, 90 miles off the American coast which was run by a guy called Batista, becomes something which is, was like then, like Las Vegas, suddenly becomes a communist satellite. Americans get twitchy. New American president turns up even more twitchy than anything else. At the same time, they're putting in missiles, the Thor missiles, which were in the United Kingdom, and they were in Italy, and they were in Turkey. And the Russians are saying, get them out. They are threatening us. So you've got threats on both sides, perceived threats. The next thing that happens is the then Defence Secretary in the United States, uh, McNamara, gets up and he starts something called, which you all know today, called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. It was the idea that you, you shoot us, we'll shoot you back, we'll kill 200 million people, but that's what we'll do it. Uh, so then a U-2 plane flies over Cuba and he said, there you are, this is in October in, in uh, 1962. There you are. They're the missiles. They are medium-range missiles and some longer-range missiles. They threaten continental United States. Kennedy gets up and he says to Khrushchev, who was the leader, listen, take him out. Otherwise, we press the button. It was resolved. Could it happen again somewhere uh, else? Uh, one of the things that happened was they put in the hotline and that is intended to make sure it doesn't happen. But there are two or three places, including, including... Uh, Tehran, that something similar could happen. And there we must leave it. My thanks to all our guests today. Thanks for listening. We're back at the same time next week from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.